Hey everyone, and welcome to the 19th episode of The Liam McCollum Show. Today I'm gonna to be talking to Michael J. Hoffman. He is the author of Monetary Kaleidics, Reflections on Money Illusion and the War on Cash. And we're also gonna talk about one of his most recent articles about whether or not the current economic crisis will be inflationary or deflationary. Um, this interview is a little more esoteric than the others if you're interested in Austrian economics and if you even question it, uh, this is this is a good interview for you. Michael is an Austrian, but he considers himself an Austropunk, which is basically um, someone within the Austrian tradition that questions other Austrians. So here's Michael. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michael, for coming on. Um, if you want to just introduce yourself and tell people who, who you are, that would be great. Uh, my name is Michael Hoffman. I'm the author of Monetary Kaleidics. Um, I'm an Austrian uh, economist. Uh, I have been studying economics, I'd say, for about a decade now. Um, a lot of people know me online as Austropunk um, on social media. Um, been writing this book for say three or four years and you know I, I became fascinated by Austrian economics uh, at, a, at a community college I took a few classes uh, intro to micro intro to macro and you know it didn't really strike me as that interesting but after a few conversations with a close friend of mine who ended up editing my book um, I became enthralled with you know Murray Rothbard uh, F.A. Hayek, Mises, all of them. It's uh, so this was it was a long road, but uh, you know, I, and to this day, I still consider myself uh, a student of Austrian economics. Every day, I'm learning new things, um, but it's it's surreal. It's surreal to be part of the community. Although I consider myself a libertarian, I try my best not to let my libertarian ideology influence my economics. Instead, I let my economics influence my libertarian ideology. Mm, interesting. And through reading the description of the book before I purchased it, um, there was a part where you talked about um, the Austrian school, what they've got wrong and what they've got right. Uh, where do you see economics start to depart from Austrians? What specifically is if many things, um, are you seeing that they get wrong? I would say first and foremost, uh, the thing I focus on most in the book is the case of money, um, banking, prices, the way that these things all interact with economic activity. Um, as I like to say in the book, money is as pervasive as it is misunderstood. We all use money. We all kind of understand it in a way, you know, you trade it for things, but it's it's so misunderstood even by Austrians. Mm. And in fairness, it's misunderstood by the mainstream in certain ways that Austrians understand it. So there's different aspects to it that both sides can get right and both sides might get wrong. And then I'm trying to bring the two together a little bit and try to make them see eye to eye and say, okay, the other side has some good points, your side has some good points, but you both are a little off on certain things. Mm. And I think that's the main aim of my book. Okay. Do you want to explain maybe what monetary kaleidics is and why people overlook it? So the, the term kaleidics in general came from an Austrian, uh, his name was uh, Ludwig Lachmann, and he was basically saying that the economy in and of itself is just a, a random uh, assortment of, of activity. It's a, it's a random pattern of, of trade and commerce that, you know, we can't predict, we can't 
quantify in any way. Um, and I took that concept and I said, well, you know, it's uh, to an extent I agree with him, although I think the market is a wonderful thing and it's, it's, it's provided a lot of uh, wealth and prosperity for all of us, but money is something that is a little bit different and it's very hard to pinpoint where money, where we can get money wrong. I mean, money provides so much wealth for us. It makes commerce and, and exchange very, very easy to do because of the double coincidence of once. But if you don't get money right, if a banking system doesn't uh, operate efficiently and allocate money and credit in a certain way, money can be the, you know, the biggest enemy of the economy. It can cause a lot of problems and distortions. Mm. Uh, it's, it's very, it's very difficult to, to pinpoint those problems too. I mean, people are, even Austrians disagree on, on very simple concepts of money. We're still debating these things. So it's, it's tough. And are, so are you in favor of uh, free banking then? I am. I think it's the most efficient system that we've, we've uh, come up with yet. Um, I don't think that, you know, some people will say, well, free banking didn't really work, you know, in the past. And I would say, well, it wasn't, if you consider free banking completely free of government involvement or intervention or anything like that, or in the absence of a, either a central bank or some kind of national bank, then we really didn't have free banking in our, in history. I mean, in our nation history, let alone world history. There's been examples where they were relatively free, but largely I think on a theoretical level, yes, free banking is probably the best system that we that we can have as far as uh, a monetary regime. In in chapter two of your book, you have, um, you one of the parts of it is Say's Law as a foundation. Do you want to talk a little bit about Say's Law and what it is? Yeah, uh, Say's Law is... Uh, it's colloquial known or colloquial known as um you know supply creating its own demand and that's the way that most people understand it and i think that this is a little bit off i think the way to look at it is more of not a state of affairs like oh you supply buy something therefore you're able to demand it. it's it's a way for the market to work and i think says law is often misunderstood in the sense that it abstracts from money. Meaning when I create something, when I produce something, I'm essentially demanding something in return. Otherwise, why would I produce something unless I wanted something in return for it? Mm. And that's very true, that's why we produce. But there's times in which that we produce things that we end up either producing the wrong thing, which entrepreneurs do all the time. It's, you know, it happens, some entrepreneurs are successful, some fail, and that's fine. Then there's times where there's kind of a general downturn in the economy where not only the wrong things were produced like they almost always are in certain places, but too many things were produced. And I think that when people think of Say's Law, they kind of look at it in sort of a, a like a barter context, when in fact money if money's not being spent, if let's say nominal spending falls, then the things you produced won't be sold and the market must adjust to that. Now, Say was saying, yes, the market will adjust and he was right. The question is, well, how long does that take? And usually the answer is longer than most Austrians think. Mm. So the Say's law is a little bit more nuanced than Austrians believe. What I find really interesting is I, in one of your most recent articles, you were mentioning that the current crisis that um, that we're experiencing right now, we don't know whether or not it's going to be inflationary or deflationary. 
Um, do you want to talk a little bit about why that is? Maybe where Austrians get that wrong? Because I've heard that it's going to be inflationary. Um, so maybe through that lens, we can talk a little bit more about certain things within your book. Sure. Yeah. I just uh, had an article published on Mises.org and uh, it talked about this. And um, I've actually written a few on my blog and I haven't really made the case saying, oh, definitively inflation is going to happen or definitively deflation is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the if I were to predict, I would say most likely stagflation would be the outcome in the long run. But I think there's different variables at play here. And I think that it's hard to weigh each one. It's hard to say, oh, well, the velocity of money falls, people stop spending, therefore there's deflation. I've heard that argument. And then some people say, well, what about the supply of money? That's going up exponentially. Of course, there's going to be inflation. And I think neither side is wrong or right. I think it's like we can't say for sure right now at this point which one will outweigh the other. And, and there's different variables too. There's productivity. Um, there's the shutdown. There's there's a lot of things. There's, there's unemployment. Um, there's foreign demand for the dollar play. There's all these different things. I've actually gotten into a few debates with uh, deflationists, people that are just dead set on saying there's deflation and inflationists, people that are like, how could it be anything other than inflation? And I'm kind of playing that devil's advocate in the middle, which I'd like to think that is, I'm playing the monetary kaleidic side. I'm saying, guys, it's it's very unpredictable. I mean, we can make all the predictions, but it, it would, it would, it's hard to tell. Now the, the inner Austrian in me is saying, it's going to be inflation. You know, that's just kind of the, the Austrian bias. We have, we see money being printed. We, we say, Oh man, here comes the inevitable boom and bust. And, but this is a little bit different. This is a different animal than the typical boom bust cycle. We're seeing a supply shock, not a, as the mainstream says, not a demand shock. We're seeing the actual, the economy itself being shut down and productivity falling from that people producing less, there being less commerce. That's not the same thing as the, as the Austrian said, and their business cycle theory about the Fed printing money and and uh, you know there being a inflation and then there's a bust with a secondary deflation. That's that's not really what's happening. Mm. Although I I don't support the Fed printing money to you know fix the problem. And I mean, it, it is interesting because a lot of Austrians they you know they acknowledge that there's this um, a post hoc fallacy where people just observe something happen and then the market responds and they automatically say well that caused it and I think that Austrians almost don't apply that same principle when talking about the money supply and increasing causing inflation because there there really are too many variable variables at hand so do you think that I guess we'll see inflation in some areas and deflation in others I think that's one way of looking at it, but I wouldn't use those those words because that I see that as a change in relative prices. You know, the prices of something's going up, right. the prices of things going down. But when you look at inflation or deflation, those are trends. Those are you know, some economists use the price level as the metric, and I think that in a loose sense, you can do that. Austrians typically reject the idea of a of a price level. But I think that when you look at the, the general trend, you'll either have prices, you know, during inflation, you can have 
and uh, you can have many prices rising, but maybe a few prices are falling. I think you can have relative price changes, but I think one must outweigh the other. Um, I don't think you can have a general trend of both at the same time. But I, I see your point that, yeah, there's going to be multiple fluctuations in prices in different sectors. The question is which will win out overall because that has a lot of important implications for expectations. You know, are people going to expect inflation or expect deflation? Um, that has a lot of um, importance when looking at the economy in terms of how are people going to spend in the future? You know, people expect inflation. They're going to spend now before prices rise. Mm. That's only going to on itself. And the same for, and the opposite for deflation. You know, if people see prices falling or there being less demand, they're going to say, well, we'll wait till prices fall and we'll spend less later. And so we have to wait and see. But I think that the Fed made a big mistake in jumping the gun with the stimulus that they did recently. So I'm looking at your your book again, and I'm very intrigued by uh, chapter three, the macroeconomic instability of online dating, an Austrian perspective. Do you want to kind of give a little overview of that? Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I wrote that chapter and I, I was like, this is kind of my uh, I guess you could say it's my laugh or curve moment where I was kind of jotting stuff down like uh, like on a napkin or a piece of paper. I'm like, oh, this is an interesting theory. And basically what I'm saying is I'm, I'm looking at the uh, I'm looking at the Austrian theory, of the business cycle. I'm looking at capital theory and then I'm. As a lot of young people do, I, I've been on, I've done online dating. You know, you, you go and you, you talk to girls, or if you're a girl, you talk to guys, and you kind of you weigh, you look at people's profiles, and you see, okay, what are they offering? And I'm looking at, it, I'm like, well, you know, everybody, we all kind of agree that the dating scene is kind of like a market. You know, you go to meet people, and you, you kind of exchange with people, you see what they're offering and what you want, and you see if there's compatibility. Well, with online dating in this chapter, I'm talking about how, you know, typically with dating, it's, it's it's not it's not a crapshoot because you have to be a good judge of character. You have to see what that person is about, um, you know, what they offer, what traits they have. But with online dating, it's it's a little bit different. And I I compare it to a, a manipulated economy with you know a central bank kind of distorting price signals. Mm. Um, so with to give an example, with a regular economy, you have prices being set and people bidding on prices, um, people buying things, selling things, commerce, you know, working pretty well. Same with the dating scene. You have people, okay, let me go up to this, let me go up to this girl in this bar. Let me talk to her, see what she's about. Or, hey, I met this girl at a party. Let me go up and talk to her. And, you know, you see what people are about and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Well, with the online version with, you know, I don't know, some apps like Tinder or uh, Bumble, you have a lot of these things are distorted. You're unable to see those that other person's traits. Uh, they can very easily lie. They can very easily um, embellish what who they are, what their accomplishments are. You know, somebody can lie about their height or their their weight, or they can even you know tweak their pictures. They can you know Photoshop themselves, and this creates distorted signals. And since we, I relate the traits that these people have inherently as kind of the capital in you know an economy from the austrian perspective everybody has their own capital to use in, in the sense of their traits and this capital has to be complementary to one another you know if, if i'm if i'm a guy who's looking for a long-term relationship and there's a girl who's just looking for a, a fling or something uh, i may not be interested i may that may not be compatible our, our both are our, our our own capital our own 
traits may not be compatible with one another, so it's not a sustainable, uh, you know, relationship or, if you will, like a, a process. It's not a sustainable process of us going out and dating. We're not going to see eye to eye, so that's just going to fail. So in that way, I kind of relate the two concepts together, and uh, I think it's I think it's very instructive. I think it's it's a way of both looking at. It's a it's a way of educating yourself on Austrian business cycle theory with a real world example. And also, I think the Austrian business cycle theory kind of informs that view on dating, too. It's like, huh, that that makes sense. A lot of people have their own specific uh, heterogeneous capital. And sometimes it's not complementary to others capital to others trades mm-hmm. so i think they both illustrate each other yeah that's really great super interesting do you do you want to talk uh maybe we can just kind of brush over some more chapters um do you want to talk about refurbishing the ricardo effect yeah that was uh, actually one of the first chapters i wrote in the book i was um I was captured by by Hayek's work. I thought he was, you know, first of all, a very difficult read, but he's the most interesting because his view on the business cycle theory changed very often, like from book to book that he wrote, he would change and tweak things. And I noticed that in most of his books that he has on the subject, he always mentioned this thing called the Ricardo effect. And I'm like, huh, I wonder why you know, Mises doesn't really mention this in his version of the theory, and Rothbard doesn't mention this in his theory. So let me let me see what this is about. And I, I read it, and I'm like, man, this is compelling. So I, I played with the idea, and I noticed that um, I heard uh, there's been a, a couple of economists that say, so basically the theory is during the cycle, during the boom, eventually you will have consumer prices rise because of the increase in the money supplied by the Federal Reserve or by the central bank. This creates inflation. Well, if you compare that inflation, the rise in prices to wages, you'll see that real wages in terms of how they how their purchasing power adjusts will fall. Mm. If real wages fall, that means they're more affordable for businesses to hire labor and use labor in, pr- in producing things instead of capital. And that kind of brings on the, the inevitable recession and, and crash that happens. And I, I looked at the empirical evidence and I noticed a few economists were like, actually, real wages don't work the way Hayek mentioned real wages actually rise during the boom they don't fall so labor actually becomes more expensive to use in product in production than um than capital hmm. so I, I looked up this here and i said you know hayek has a good idea here but he's a little off so i i tweaked his theory i said well let's see what else is here and i i realized after talking to a few economists um privately that hayek shouldn't have been you know it's funny the austrians including hayek always talk about economists aggregating too much. Well, in this case, Hayek aggregated too much and just looking at real wages in general as if there's some kind of homogenous thing. Whereas businesses actually look at their own employee, individual employees' wages relative to that specific business's profits. Mm. So I looked at that and I, I said, man, if we actually look at how businesses operate towards the end of the business cycle, they tend to use more labor because it's cheaper to use more labor on an individual basis rather than looking at real wages is a general, you know, general trend. You know, if I'm a businessman and I'm making product X, I don't care what the employees that are making, that are working for another company or in another industry that are making product Y. I don't care what their wages are. I only care what my wages are. So Hayek had a good thing going there, but I think he aggregated too much and he didn't realize that 
we can look at kind of certain aspects of this. Um, there's concepts like the business turnover, um, the inter intertemporal substitution of capital. Um, in the book, I talk about these things and how they relate to the price of labor. Um, I think Hayek, I think the Ricardo effect, if we tweaked it a little bit from what Hayek said, it's very useful in terms of Austrian business cycle theory, but I haven't seen many economists do that today. I don't see much emphasis on it. I think that that's something that, that should change. To move into your second part of the book, uh, talking about monetary disequilibrium and free banking more specifically, do you want to talk about the relevance of monetary flows? Yes, this was uh, probably one of my most favorite chapters to write because it was it was something that I just noticed and I didn't see anyone else mention. And I think it's very important. And the basic gist is the the, the causal realist tradition in Austrian economics, starting with Karl Menger, is something that a lot of uh, Austrians emphasize. And they simply look at you know marginal utility and all the stocks of goods and money, and they they use. Um, all of our our appraisal of these goods, you know, in an, in an ordinal way, you know, we rank our most desired needs one, and then our second one two, and we base our economic decisions on those those appraisals. And I was like, well, that that makes sense, and I, I agree with that. But I, I've noticed in a few writings by uh, economists like Joe Salerno that they often disregard certain other concepts um, in terms of marginal utility such as income, like uh, there's the income effect that, that mainstream economists talk about. And it basically says, you know, a change in the income or a change in the purchasing power of your income will change uh, your array of, of purchases. You'll, you'll change what things you want to buy. And Salerno kind of hand waves this away and says, well, the income effect doesn't really have much of an effect on our appraisal process, you know, in our, in our ordinal rankings of goods. It's kind of an abstract, um, subjective thing. He says it's not really that important. And when researching monetary disequilibrium theory, I noticed, well, incomes are extremely important because we, we anticipate them. You know, every two weeks we anticipate a paycheck or if we're investing, we anticipate, you know, uh, capital gains. If the income we usually receive or that we're used to receiving doesn't come in or it's much, it, it's reduced by a great amount, then that kind of catches us off guard and that kind of messes up that appraisal process of those goods. Mm. And this is kind of my problem with the Austri at least some Austrians is they kind of hand wave these problems away and say, oh, well, the market will adjust. Mm. Well, it will, but it, it takes time. And these flows change and they can be very sudden. And this is where I actually kind of favor a little bit of monetarism in my writings where I say money really does matter. And you can't just say that, oh, prices will adjust because, you know, if <laughs> It takes it takes a lot of time for these things to happen. That's what a recession is. You know, it's um, it's it's uh, troubling to me that Austrians often say, "Well, recession is a necessary um, is a necessary solution to a previous boom." And I would agree with that. I think you know you should, if the Fed is manipulating things, it should stop. At the same time, you can have a recession without having a, a Fed-induced boom. You can have a recession just by people reducing their spending for whatever reason, uncertainty or a crisis like we're seeing now with uh, COVID. Um, so I don't think the, the Austrian business cycle theory is an all-encompassing theory of the business cycle. I think there's other explanations that can complement it. Mm. Um, in fact, I, I'd even go as far to saying Austrian business cycle theory is one aspect, one side 
of monetary disequilibrium theory. So mm-hmm. it's within that that framework that I use it. Okay, well, yeah, to get more into that theory, do you want to talk about Rothbard um, as a theorist, as a monetary disequilibrium theorist? I'd, I'd love to talk about Rothbard because <laughs> he's, he's one of my favorites. And I, it's like I've been accused of saying I'm a hater. I, I, I hate his guts. And um, I, I really don't. As a matter of fact, I actually uh, dedicated one of my chapters in here to something he wrote about the, the 10 myths of, uh, of economics. Mm. or 10 economic myths but uh in, in that chapter um i i, I was uh i delved back into man economy state which was one of the first books i i had read when i first got into this um but i i went back um a while after and i read through his chapter on money and its purchasing uh, purchasing power and i realized you know okay he has this idea of there's you know uh fraud and fractional reserve banking there's there's um perpetual inflation that you know his definition of inflation is uh increasing the amount of warehouse notes beyond the reserves that the bank has whether it's gold or, or commodity whatever it may be and i'm reading this chapter and i realize you know he has a couple different explanations of how money works here and, and on the one hand you know that's his for that's his position that inflation is always bad it's it's always stemmed from this one thing you know banks increasing the amount of notes in circulation but then i i read on and i say he actually uses the monetary disequilibrium construct and he, to explain the changing in prices um he even uses that label once which I, i've read some of his uh his followers work online and they like adamantly reject it and they say he would never like, like he rejects that framework altogether it's a nonsense thing he doesn't believe in that it's like if you read man economy state he at least flirts with it he at least kind of talks about it and explains in the same way mises did how a change in either the supply of money or the demand for money relative to another can change spending flows and can change prices in a way that aren't typically understood in the Austrian framework. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think Rothbard is, is um, you know, was a really, it was a, he was a brilliant man, but I think he was, he was inconsistent in several ways when it came to money and banking in general. And this was one example. Later in, in your next chapter, an austro monetarist synthesis like you were talking about earlier um you do mention rothbard's equation and the velocity velocity of money do you kind of want to get into that chapter yes that chapter i noticed um that there was a lot of um animosity towards monetarism from the austrians and rightfully so monetarism has gotten some things wrong um but i noticed that what you know instead of one to say instead of attacking other perspectives which you know you, you should critique other sides if they're wrong but what's a way to bring good aspects of monetarism to the good aspects of austrian economics and i noticed that well a lot of things that monetarism talks about are based on the equation of exchange um and i decided you know, I want to do some, something with that. And I noticed that uh, Roger Garrison, an Austrian, he had kind of a, a basic framework of looking at the equation of exchange through the eyes of an Austrian. And he didn't, I, I wanted to take it a little bit farther than him. So what I did was I basically took the supply of money, which was M, if you're familiar with the equation, times V, which is the velocity of money, that equals the price level, P, times the amount of transactions in the economy, which is T. And I wanted to take T, or some economists use Q for the total amount of goods in the economy, and disaggregate it mm. because 
uh, you know, Austrians emphasize, you know, you can't look at these big aggregates and derive, you know, uh, certain economic, you can't look at cause and effect very easily that way. So I looked at Q in that equation, production or total goods, and I said, let's put in the Hayekian triangle in here. Let's put in Austrian business cycle theory in part of this equation to show how changes in both the money supply and spending of money or velocity can change the Hayekian triangle in terms of the business cycle. Wow. And I wanted to illustrate that in a very basic way to Austrians who might be new to it and might who might be wrongfully influenced by, you know, Rothbard or someone to dislike monetarism entirely and say, mm-hmm. no, hold on, monetarism has some good things about it. So right. I think I did a pretty good job of explaining it to you know, new Austrians. In in your next chapter, you're you were talking about Hoppe and the conservative socialism of bank, his banking theory. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? That that sure that took me by surprise. Yeah, uh, to be honest, when I when I was first reading it, I was I was surprised too because I I realized that you know I, I liked Hop, I, I really did, um, especially his book, which I, I part of this is based on his book, uh, the Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. I said, you know, I, I largely agree with what he's saying here. I think these are all great points, and um, but I, I noticed that you know if you read his other work on on banking, like I've read his book. Um, the economics and ethics of private property, which I, I disagree with a lot of it. I still think it's a great book and I think all Austrians should read it. But I noticed a disconnect between the two um, in that in the in the book on socialism, Hoppe talks about different varieties of socialism. He mentions one called conservative socialism. And I was like, conservative socialism? Let's let's see what this is about. And in this in essence it talks about, you know, it doesn't talk about taking property. Um, it doesn't talk about um, physical property per se, like socialists want to say, you know, there needs to be equality. Instead, Hoppe talks about maintaining the value of the property that already exists mm. um, in terms of a certain distribution of that wealth. You know, he wants to say, he wants to maintain, or he, he's saying the conservative socialists want to maintain the existing amount of uh, existing array of wealth of all property that people own. And I was like, okay, but then I looked at his his view on money, and long story short he believes that money should also be prevented from being devalued or changed in value through a banking system he doesn't think for example that fractional reserve banking should be allowed to devalue the money and even putting aside the flaws in that that uh, belief that they automatically devalue the money um, i would say to him you know what what makes you think that your money deserves to be not what makes you think your money doesn't deserve to have its value changed? I mean, money is, is subject to supply and demand, just like any other good. It's, it's going to fluctuate. Nothing entitles you to have your money maintain its value. I mean, he, he makes the case that, well, if banks, banks are just printing money, then that devalues it. And I would say, well, in your own system that you prefer, a 100% reserve gold standard, you would have increases in the supply of gold as well. That would change the inherent value of gold, wouldn't it? That would change the inherent value of our money holdings too. So that seemed to me that he was not only inconsistent, but a lot of his beliefs, this being one of them, was also guilty of that conservative socialism as well. Um, one other example was he 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 uh, put out the idea that you know often in order to maintain the value of a lot of property, price controls were put in place so that their their value wouldn't fluctuate. And again, if you look at his 
proposal for a 100% reserve banking system, there's something akin to a price control there because in, without getting into it in certain ways, the 100% reserve system doesn't allow interest rates to truly reflect the the the, the amount of voluntary savings in the economy mm-hmm. and all supply of money. It's not allowed to work in the same way that it can in a fractional reserve banking system. So Hoppy's own position, his own preferred banking system, actually implements a sort of pseudo uh, price control on interest rates. So I'm seeing a lot of beliefs that he holds and his views on money and banking as being guilty of being this of this conservative socialist variety that he critiques in his other book. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's, it was interesting to me. Um, next, do you want to, do you want to talk about Austropunkism and what that is? You mentioned it earlier and I know you go by that on social media, um, on Austropunk. Uh, do you want to tell people what that is? Uh, Austropunkism is basically to me anyway, it's to me, it's just questioning the, the dominant way of thinking about things, in this case, Austrian economics. Um, you, you look at, as um, some people would say, like the, 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 big, the big guys, the big cheese, like Mises, Hayek, Rothbard, and you say, okay, well, what did they say? I think that we should be free to question them at every turn. Um, if the, you know, j- just because we think, you know, we all think Rothbard's great, we all think he's brilliant, same with Mises, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they're right about everything. Um, I, there was an article uh, that was written back in the 90s, and I think it was published years later by Joe Salerno, that talked about the problems with Austropunkism. And one of those problems was it's it has to do with just this kind of movement within Austrian economics that raises more questions than is necessary. They're always, uh, he was saying that the Austropunks are always trying to question authority, um, even when they they themselves don't have a proper edu- or like a formal education in Austrian economics, and the debate got really um, muddled down. It got really clouded. There was a lot of back and forth between the two. But I looked at it and I said, you know, I want to keep this simple and just say, you know, I'm an Austropunk simply in the sense of I don't think that we should just blindly accept everything that the masters of Austrian economics have put forth. I don't think that's a good way to do economics. Um, I think that that's one thing that the mainstream has a good idea with, in part at least, in that they're willing to look at new evidence and consider new perspectives and see if those perspectives work. Um, I think that's something Austrians should be more open-minded to, and that's kind of the background of, of where my name comes from. And now to get into the chapter that I know that I will be most interested in, um, eight economic misconceptions uh, that you have that you found. Um, not to spoil them all, not to go through every single one. Do you want to just pick maybe one of your favorites and talk about it? Yeah, I think that the one that I'll pick one that is probably one of the more important ones in terms of, of money and monetary colitics, and that is um, interest rates. And um, I sort of borrowed this from uh, market monetarists who often say this and they say, you know, interest rates are an important price. They tell us a lot, but they're not an accurate indicator of the stance of monetary policy. In in other words, just looking at an interest rate doesn't tell us why the interest rate is the way it is, like where it's at, or if it changes, what caused it to change? The reason it's important is because a lot of Austrians will say, oh, look at these low interest rates. Oh man, that's manipulation by the Fed, or that's 
even in a free market, they'd say they shouldn't lower interest rates because that creates an artificial boom. And I would say, well, hold on a second. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were manipulated. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were caused by, let's say, an increase in credit or an increase in the money supply. Mm-hmm. There's other factors. They can be increased in, or they can, they can fall for other reasons. For example, they can fall because of a decrease in the demand for investment. You know, if, there, if there's a lot of pessimism in the market, if there's a lot of uncertainty, people might not demand uh, to to borrow as much as they did before. So you have to look at the interest rate as kind of a balance of, of again, supply and demand. There's It's a price. Um, so people like Austrians tend to only look at the supply, the supply of savings or the supply of money as being influenced or, or as influencing the interest rate when in fact demand plays a big part too. Not to mention there's other variables that make it even more complicated. Um, price expectations play a big part too, you know, like, uh, for example, Austrians will often say, well, you know, low interest rates, that means that uh, it's it's a monetary easing. There's a lot of, there's there's too much money in the system. Well, higher interest rates can can mean that too. You know, if you have high interest rates, that's just an indication that there's about to be high inflation, you know, because people are expecting it. So I would put it, I would question Austrians that say, oh, these interest rates are too low. And I would, I would ask them, how do you know they're too low? Like, how do you know that they're too low relative to the to the supply of savings and the demand for loans in the economy? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I think is very important. Um, now, do you want to talk about Gresham, Gresham's fallacy and the war on cash? Maybe go into um, Larry Summers and legal tender laws as well. Sure. This this was the first chapter uh, I wrote for the book, and I was I was thinking about the war on cash. Um, for a while, noticing how you know a lot of economists like Larry Summers and, and Kenneth Rogoff and a few others really do want to get rid of physical cash. You know, I mean, they prefer to get rid of all of it, but I've noticed in their papers they've written um, and some of their articles that they've had published, they firstly want to get rid of high denominational bills, $100 bills, $50 bills, and then most likely work their way from there. That's kind of a long-term goal of theirs. And they like to say that, oh, well, it's to get rid of, you know, child trafficking, um, the drug trade, you know, a lot of things that criminals do that need um, that that try to remain anonymous. But I delved deeper into their research and I I saw that, well, no, no, they, they just want to implement negative interest rates. The reason they want to get rid of cash is because when you can withdraw cash from a bank, if they implement interest rates that are negative, that means you're paying money to keep your money in a bank instead of having, you know, getting paid a return like we do now. Mm. If they lower interest rates below zero enough, then people will take their money out of the bank and therefore the banking system won't be able to operate as efficiently. They won't be able to print as much money because they'll have less reserves. But if they get rid of cash, then you know, they can do whatever they want. If they eliminate your ability to withdraw your money from the bank, then they can essentially make interest rates almost whatever they want. They can lower it, you know, a a significant degree below zero. Mm. And I noticed something and I said, well, I I was looking at Gresham's law and, and the historical aspects of it. And I noticed that, um, you know, famously, it states that um, you know one type, a good type of money will be hoarded, and a and a bad type of money will be spent, or uh, depending on how they're valued in the market. And I noticed that with negative interest rates, if people actually withdraw their money, 
let's say I let's say I withdraw hundred dollar bills and fifty dollar bills, and I have a certain amount of cash. There's a certain amount of cash on me, and other people only have digital dollars in their bank accounts. Those physical dollars will actually they won't be hoarded. They'll actually be able to be traded at a premium over the digital dollars. Essentially, physical dollars will be seen as a different currency mm-hmm. than digital still be seen as different. So it would be advantageous for people during these negative interest rates if they eliminate um, dollars as legal tender as these economists want, it would benefit people to actually keep their cash uh, and physical, you know, keep physical cash and keep their money in a bank because it'll actually have higher purchasing power relative to the digital money in their bank account. Mm. And I think Gresham's law is, is it kind of demonstrates that, that money isn't always hoarded in those cases. Sometimes it actually trades at a premium, which historically it has at times. So I thought that was very important for, you know, like our current situation with, we don't know what the banking system is going to do. And other banks in the world have actually implemented negative interest rates. I know in Japan and in Europe, they've done that too. And as a matter of fact, in, in Europe, they, uh, I think a couple of years ago they eliminated the their highest uh, denominational bill, the, the 500 euro. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not like this is unprecedented. They've this has happened, and I think that it's going to slowly continue. So in the book, in that chapter, I, I um, encourage people to at least keep a, a good portion of their savings in physical form rather than just keep everything in their bank account. Um, I think that's a, a wise decision to di- to diversify. What's up with uh, Argentina and Venezuela? Do you want to talk about um, how that's applicable, how they're applicable? Yeah, the, uh, so in the past few years, we've seen uh, both of them go through, especially Venezuela, we've seen them go through incredible amounts of inflation due to money printing and their economy faltering. Um, I think... I think it's important to note that a lot of people have actually ended up seeing that dollars have been used rather than hoarded. They've actually dollarized. They've, they've incorporated people have held dollars in greater amounts because of this. I don't think that it's it's exactly an apples to apples comparison because Venezuela, the dollar is not their de facto, it's not their, uh, their actual currency. So I make the example in my book that, you know, in Venezuela, the exchange rate for dollars on the black market is much higher than the exchange rate of dollars, the, the official exchange rate. And that just proves that in a black market, like I described just now with um, Gresham's Law, you're going to have currency not so much be hoarded, maybe it will to a certain extent, but you're going to see it actually trade at a premium in the black market versus you know the official exchange rate in the economy. Yeah. And I think that, again, while not an apples to apples comparison, I think it's important to note that a similar thing can happen in the U.S. with holding physical dollars to versus, uh, you know, digital dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and now to kind of finish up here, um, we, we can finish up with asking the question, is free trade a barbarous relic? And then uh, what can still be done? It's absolutely not, and uh, this this part of my book was uh, interesting because I'm um, I'm a fan of uh, a writer named Jim Rickards. He's uh, he's well known to Austrians. Um, he's I think of him more like a financial, uh, basically like a Peter Schiff, but he does a little bit more finance and economics. Mm-hmm. And you know, I agree. I read all his books, and I was reading um, at the time it was his latest book called The Road to Ruin, and. I largely agreed with his perspective on central banking and inflation, and I noticed he had a chapter in the book about trade, about free trade. And in the book, I, I he basically said um, things like 
comparative advantage and, and free trade don't, you know, they're not all their, their, uh, they don't deserve the praise that economists give them. Uh, they, things, the world doesn't work that way anymore. Uh, he says things have changed. As a matter of fact, he goes as far to say that, you know, mercantilist uh, policies and, and tariffs can actually benefit us and have benefited us in the past. And I make the case in the book that, man, as great as he is on money, he just completely falls flat in his in his sentiments. Um, a lot of I looked at a lot of his analysis, um, you know, for, again using tariffs as an example. When he was saying, well, you know, tariffs could be useful in in a certain way, I would say, well, it, like for example, he says, you know, our, our we have a trade deficit and that's a problem, and, and tariffs can be used to to perhaps mitigate that or to perhaps you know improve our economy. And I make the case that you know if you're trying to improve exports, I mean, tariffs are actually the one of the big problems with that, that'll actually reduce exports because that'll reduce the amount of dollars that foreigners will receive by buying our products. And, you know, or I'm sorry, that that's, that's less dollars they'll get by us buying their products, I'm sorry. And if they get less of our dollars, then that's less that they can either A, invest in our infrastructure, buy our bonds, invest in our real estate, or buy our products. So. I looked at his reasoning, and this is this might be a little bit of a stretch, but I, he wrote this book around 2016. And I, at this, at, still at this point, I'm not sure if he wrote that book as kind of uh, to go to ride the wave of you know the whole Trump movement and everything, the kind of uh, nationalist protectionist perspective. Mm-hmm. I suspect that he did, and I think that he was gravely mistaken. And that's what this chapter kind of attacks: the kind of protectionist, nationalistic perspective um, that he puts out. I, I, of all his books, I like all his books, but that book I was I was not a fan of. And that's what the final chapter of my book uh, talks about. And critiques. Well, great. Yeah. If there's anything that we left out, any last comments you want to make, uh, please do. But then uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you and then we can let you go. Um, I would just say that uh, as far as as far as Austrian economics, I I'd like to say that I think the direction it's going in is, is overall, I'm, I'm happy about it. I think there's a lot of young people that are really enthusiastic. I've talked to a lot of young guys, a lot of young girls that, that are really excited about it. You know, they're, they're going to visit the Mises Institute for the first time this summer, or they're, they're reading Rothbard or Hazlitt for the first time. I think that's, that's great. Um, I would, and I always try to do this when I talk to people, I try to tell them, read Rothbard and read Hasley, but read them with like a critical eye, like read them critically and make sure you don't just buy everything they're saying. And also try to read other, not only other Austrians, but other perspectives too. You know, there's nothing wrong with reading Milton Friedman and kind of agreeing with him on certain things um, or other economists. I've actually read a little bit of Keynes and I think that he made a a few good points here and there. I don't think that he's this evil villain that everyone makes him out to be. (laughs) Um, So I would say to, to Austrians, you know, keep an open mind and kind of have that Austropunk perspective that you should always question the prevailing thought, especially in the Austrian tradition. Always question. Um, but yeah, as far as uh, people, if people want to find me online uh, on Instagram, it's uh, I'm Austropunk. That's um, uh, Austro underscore punk. Uh, my blog is austropunkism.wordpress.com. Um, also on Reddit, we have a couple different Austrian uh, forums on the on uh, the website Reddit. Um, feel free to come in and chat there. We debate a lot in there, and it's it's pretty fun. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at, at AustroPunk. 
Um, so yeah, there's some place you guys can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It was great talking to you. I'll talk to you later. All right. Sounds good, man. I appreciate it. It's the weekend. We can let go. It's the full send.